This is an HBC Special Report. That's right. Welcome to a hoaxbusterscall.com special report. In this inaugural episode, we are going to talk about something called Weird Scenes Inside the Kitchen. And the reason we've titled it that is because I, for almost a year, have been looking into the interesting backgrounds of some of the celebrity chefs that you see on television, uh, current and past. Um, but before we get into the actual backgrounds of some of these celebrity chefs, um, I wanted to have a discussion with uh, Chris here about, uh, I'd say, an anthropological perspective of food and why food and just eating in general would be would be something that an intelligence agency, which Chris and I have gone over at length uh, throughout many episodes, uh, that the intelligence agencies control our culture and steer our culture in particular directions, and that's most likely their primary function. And so food should be included in them because... Food is something linked to tradition, it's linked to family, it's linked to the way that people have good times and fun, and a lot of things are associated with food psychologically. And so it would make sense that if you wanted to control the way that people thought about culture, the way uh, people acted within a culture, that one of the areas you would want to control is food. What do you think about that, Chris? Oh, yeah, that is definitely the case. That's also where the uh, familiar bo uh, bonding takes place around the table. And uh, the family structure is reinforced. And the family talk about the, the destruction and the dissolution of the family. That's an important topic because that is something that... Uh, it, it, you know, it's we're we're in a type of warfare, and um, yeah, an interesting thing like that uh, that article I sent you it brings out the fact that um, you know a lot of uh, this may be jumping ahead a little, but anyway, I'll just go ahead and say it while it's on my mind that the processed foods and all of that, I mean, conceptually and everything was derived by the military and that's where those products were developed and then it, it gets uh, then you know taken into marketing and the the food industry has a vested, vested interest in promoting these things so they um, even though there was a lot of resistance to it through marketing and through television and and, and through advertising they were able to um, gradually and incrementally get the usage of these foods that like you know like oh well you know I guess it, it's okay for battle you know to eat uh, one of those MREs meals ready to eat which are awful but you know you you, you could take that and turn it into something marketable and then uh, bring it into the culture but it's interesting how it it, it begins in the military and in a war context 
Yeah, it's interesting you say that, and I just had an idea pop into my head as you were talking about that. You know, we could technically look at that, that famous quote, I think, you know, one person um, who said it was Henry Kissinger, and I believe there was a lady from the United Nations who said it as well, or used it in some sort of context, that food is weaponized against people. Um, right. But it's funny, like, the way that we're going to examine it, it, weaponized food actually takes on a whole new meaning, um, whereas you would think of weaponized food as being something like GMOs or, uh, you know, using food as a weapon, like, to starve a population or something like that. Um, food can also be weaponized through through weaponized culture, and uh, it can be used to, to break down a culture and degrade a culture, um, it's interesting how, like, in that article you sent me, which um, I wanted to uh, refer to that article and uh, see what it's uh, by Michael Pollan. And Michael Pollan was, uh, wrote a book quite a while back. I'm not sure exactly how many years ago, but he wrote a book called In Defense of Food. And I was just telling Chris a little bit about that book. It's kind of a uh, anthropological study of, of how food, uh, how people relate through food and whatnot. But yeah, uh, people tend to uh, watch these these uh, cooking shows, and then they don't actually go engage in the cooking themselves. Um, it's right. it's uh, which we we've talked about before. It's it's kind of like food porn. And and he he goes on to talk about uh, Julia Child, which is somebody we're actually going to uh, talk about in this uh, in this little talk here. Um, but he was talking about how um, back in the 1960s, you know, someone would watch a show like Julia Child's uh, show, the uh, uh, French Cook, and um, then the person watching the show would then go make the food that they saw on television uh-huh. and it was a guide to to teaching you how to make food but today that rarely happens and he even covers that in this article about how most people will watch these shows but they do not prepare food themselves at all and how isolated people become in in um and he he goes over it uh, saying you know well uh, you know more wi- more women are working now so they don't have time to to make the food preparation uh, men and women are working so neither men or women have time to do that and and so from my own perspective what I would think that it does is you know there's this archetypal thing in you know, in humans to want to prepare food, to want to engage in that. There's something built into us. And these food uh, programs, these uh, celebrity chef programs, provide a voyeuristic, uh, you know, fulfill the voyeuristic need for that uh, appeal to an archetype. What do you think of that, Chris? Well, that's something that we commonly see. Uh, 
around us in different manifestations. But that, yeah, it is to take what what is something that's uh, a a sort of uh, in, intrinsic thing, an intrinsic need, uh, uh, an instinctual uh, sort of inclination, and turn it into something artificial or synthetic. And um, yeah, that's how that's how it was done through these programs, and they call them programs for a reason. And it's pretty amazing how you see that how it's transformed our culture you know through the last couple of decades not even that long that woman's julia child's on the air yeah i mean really she's the first celebrity chef i'd say i mean there were there were people who uh, before her who had written cookbooks or you know they may have uh Maybe there might have even been somebody before her, her who had a televised cooking show, but she was the first celebrity chef, and um, it really kicked off that whole, uh, you know, really kicked off that whole culture with her, with her doing that. And um, because, and I wanted to bring this up just because we talked about it before, but just so we have it uh, included in this uh, discussion is that we have looked at people like Chuck Barris and Tom Braden in the past as pe- as people being connected to an intelligence agency who are known for uh, kicking off certain elements of culture, like Chuck Barris with, you know, uh, the game shows and Tom Braden with the news program. And... Um, these, and at least, I mean, Chuck Barris claimed to be a CIA operative. I think he probably was a CIA, CIA operative. I, I, uh, I'm not too sure about him going and assassinating other people in other countries, but it is interesting to note that he, that the CIA was involved with making game shows. <laughs> and, and also, Tom Braden was an admitted CIA operative, not just an asset, but an, an a CIA operative. And, you know, then he's spearheading the whole news roundtable type thing, you know, with Crossfire, and also was involved with entertainment because if you're old enough to remember the television show Eight's Enough, that was based on the life of Tom Braden. So um, here you have known CIA people involved with culture creation, and um, uh, not to uh, give it away uh, before we get into it, but Julia Child, which I only bring it up because we've already discussed her in the past, she was actually an intelligence operative for the OSS at one time, and so was her husband, Paul. But, um, but yeah, like we've discussed before, and, and there, there's plenty of books out there you can you can go check, like mainline books like uh, Francis Stoner Saunders' uh the cultural cold war uh talking about how the cia was involved with uh the arts and uh-huh. then you've got the other book i think it's called the grand Wurlitzer, isn't that the cia in hollywood right yeah and and so so we're just right there you've got you've got mainline admissions that the cia is involved with entertainment and the arts so why wouldn't they be involved with food as well? 
Yeah, if anybody thinks that, uh, oh, well, that was totally innocent and there was no intention of it developing um, to the point where it has in the modern day, yeah, I just looked at Julia Child's background and what she was all about and then reevaluate that based on that information. I think that's uh, a definite, uh, deliberate, intentional uh operation that's been ongoing you know since then which was the 1960s right she was on uh, pbs yeah she was on pbs starting in 1963 now i want to i want to say something here and you and i have talked about this before um but maybe not on a call but you know like take Dave mcgowan's work you know that's another area right there cia involved in music um you know it's not to say that somebody couldn't be something and, like, say, enjoy what they're doing or, or be good at what they're doing. Like, but take, take a musician. A musician could be good at what they're doing just as well as Julia Child who could have, you know, was, a, was an amazing cook. But right. that doesn't mean, that doesn't necessarily mean that they can't be part of something in order to steer culture, and that doesn't necessarily mean that they themselves would think that what they were doing was underhanded or nefarious, either. They may think that they're they're part of a culture creation type thing that uh, you know is doing you know they're doing it for America, they're doing it for the for American culture, that type of thing. And so there's all sorts of different things. It, it, it isn't always that that when we bring this type of stuff up. Um, like take for instance the uh, in, in the past uh, Chris and I and uh, had a discussion with uh, Marcus Allen uh, of Truth in Seven Minutes uh, about punk rock music and how there's connections there to intelligence agencies you know that doesn't necessarily mean that the person who is playing in the band doesn't like to play music you know, you see what I'm right. saying, Chris? Right, yeah, I I hear what you're saying. I, I I think it's important to understand, too, that there's a lot of people out there that subscribe to certain belief systems, and um, I think, think some of this would fall in line with what people understand as kind of radical uh, liberalism or... Um, they call themselves progressives or uh, so you know and they're mainly align themselves with the uh, socia- socialist ideologies and Karl Marx and um, it, 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 these people don't think like the average person does and one of the things that I, I think it's a uh, it, it's a pretty pretty prominent theme in a lot of the, the different writings and stuff that uh, that, that come out of that is um, this contempt and hatred for the family and the desire to destroy the family and to um you know install this uh you know socialist utopia that's kind of but first you know you have to eradicate what it what it, the power structures that exist which is you know the, the family unit is the most powerful cultural um and and so and, and social uh, organization that there is, you know, on the planet. I mean, for, for in reality, but that you know that had to be eradicated. And you know, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't uh, take the position that 
you know, Julia Childs was totally um, un- unaware, maybe of those. I I, I don't know, but um, I I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't be surprised if she had a lot of those sentiments and was uh, really um, enthusiastic about uh, you know feminism and 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 understood the implications and what that was. Uh, you know what what was being done with all of this i i i wouldn't i wouldn't rule that out i agree i wouldn't rule it out but also i wouldn't rule out too that there are people involved with a lot of these things um that do it because they're patriotic uh do it because they're thinking because they're fighting for some cause or they're protecting some sort of um, american culture that allegedly existed at one time and um or they're, or they're also thinking that they're doing it for strengthening the ideals that allegedly existed. There's a lot of dupes out there as well. But yes, there are a lot of people who, like you said, align themselves with a socialist ideology. That's very interesting that you brought that up because it just so happens that uh, Julie Child, her, her husband, was actually questioned by the HUAC committee, right? The uh, House Un-American Activities Committee for being a possible cause of socialism. Now, that is not saying anything much because we all know that was total, a total hoax. Uh, right. Used to kind of, you know, maybe used uh, for political purposes and, um, and uh, you know, looking for looking for monsters under the bed type stuff. But, um, but there was a lot of truth that came out in that in that uh, particular time period as to how many people actually did, like you say, uh, you know, think along those lines as, as you know, America uh, was set up to be this kind of socialist utopia. There is, there is a sort of a disconnect there, too, uh, with a lot of people who actually really do believe that that is, you know, like, that's what it is. Like, we live in a socialist society, and we do. I mean, there's no doubt about it, but but that's not what the average person who believes in in America and you know puts the flag out on Fourth of July they don't they don't believe that. Right. Yeah. But then you know when you get into dealing with these people that are in in these uh, particular realms of you know uh, you, you know you talk about people in the CIA you're talking about, yeah the intelligence communities and all that stuff. Uh, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't say that they they were um, didn't have some kind of ide- ideological bent that kind of uh, motivated them um, to 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 one degree or another. But of course, uh, yeah, that's that would be uh, that would be something that you'd have to um, uh, get get inside their mind and figure out. But how do you do that? But yeah, what what are what what, what's uh, but I, I do think that's driving a lot of this though I think there's an ideological underpinning to a lot of it that people firmly believe in certain ideals and it it, it, it it's to get away from you know the, there's all kinds of uh, you know uh, opposition to the what's called uh, you know the uh, um, patriarchal structure you know that they see as being so so bad and so harmful 
yeah, which I agree, and, and all of that too. Yeah, so yeah, I, I, I know that's there, and I know that there's a lot of people that firmly believe in that, and they believe in, uh, you know, things like, um, yeah, the average person shouldn't should not be allowed to have uh, firearms and all that stuff, and it's 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 all in line with, uh, you know, radical uh, socialist ideology and all of that, and. And, and there's plenty of people out there that are really, really bent on that. I mean, and uh, even though, on the one hand, um, a lot of people that harbor those radical beliefs and stuff like that, they're, they're not frank and open about it, you know, generally. Because they know that. No. No. Yeah, they know, like like you said, that the average person is not, doesn't think that way. So, And they understand that. So, but... Um, yeah, and then you yeah, know, Hollywood's full of those. Yeah, and another another thing that's interesting too is that if you open up any any anthrop- any sort of anthropological study, any book book on anthropology, you know, say just read something written by Margaret Mead or something, um, you're going to find in anthropology and sociology that there's a lot of talk about food agri- and uh, agriculture and um, food preparation, uh, what types of food that people eat. There's a lot of study, and most of the studies are on other countries besides America, right? Um, and so, you know, they, they do these studies on, you know, what, what do the savages in the Amazon eat? And, you know, they go over all of the structures uh, when, when they're doing these. Oh, if you go back, you know, someone like Margaret Mead, uh, would do these overtly racist uh, statements and studies in her books um, about the savages and um, these uncivilized, unwashed people, and um, and so these. But but it's interesting. You can read a lot, of, you know, anthropology books and things like that, and then you can apply it to America and and uh, what you would call a civilized country or Western country of you know with with cities and all sorts of things like that and then you can apply those same things and just think about well somebody somewhere has studied how we eat and what our traditions are and what our preferences are and um, and we've been shifted and changed uh, over a long period of time through our food consumption we don't and that's something that we don't realize and I don't think that a lot of people uh, talk about it from that particular angle of of uh, cultural manipulation through food. I mean, just look at uh, just take advertising and food and the marketing of food and the way that we actually think about food, like the way uh, the way food works. I mean, food is psychological. First off, like on a very base level, it's you know it's uh, it's a base desire to eat. So, I mean, one, that, w- that would be a great thing for a, uh, for a culture controller to, to have control over, just your base desire. We all know that uh, culture controllers and advertisers monkey around with these sexual impulses. I, I would tend to think that they monkey around with our impulses to eat as well. Yeah, and then it takes on the form of... Um marketing well you know through the marketing of of products 
And along with that goes a lot of ideas about food and how it how it's consumed or what people's you know ideas towards food uh, get be, get shaped through uh, the marketing of the product. And um, I think as as a control tool, as part of our our society and our culture, how uh, marketing, you know, we talk about that a lot, marketing, public relations and all of that, and how, um, you know, th- these messages are sent to us. Th- at the same time, they're trying to sell us a product, but they're also selling us ideas about how that how that product is is to be consumed and what context and and the different uh, associations that are uh, built around that 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 weren't there before and uh, and you could see how another thing too I think it's important to point out how synchronized all this stuff is it, it's it's amazing how synchronized it all is oh, yeah. like the development of uh, you know, so Julia Child arrives on the scene, and it mentions this in this article that uh, at the same time, as uh, Betty Friedan, right, came out with that uh, sort of seminal book on feminism, the feminine mystique, the feminine mystique, and how that's coordinated at the same time with corporations and their desire to. Um, Infuse the grocery stores and the uh, kitchen tables all across uh, uh, the the dining tables across the the country with this uh, processed food. That uh, hey, that's a that's a really good point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I yeah, keep going. I, I was just I was just saying, wow, what a great point you, you made that correlation really well. Yeah, the coordination of all this stuff it's 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 startling when you look to to step back and look at it. And then see how um, well that I mean that's the nature of the system we live in. How you know this none of this stuff happens in a in a vacuum on its own. It's all it's all timed and coordinated to unfold and to be ready at the proper time to to come out and um, and facilitate certain uh, cultural changes and shifts and and of course. Uh, you know the the economy is a big driver of this. You know people working longer hours and having less time to prepare their own food, and uh, that's that's a lot of that's a big uh, pressure point. You know, and all of that was um, being brought in to coordinate with this. You know, yeah, it's it's you know it's funny too because that article all I, I thought that was really interesting that uh, he. Um, he brought up Betty Friedan and the feminine mystique, and he brought it up in an interesting way because he was making a point that you know how Julia Child could be conceived, you know, um, how she wouldn't really fit in with the whole feminist thing of the time period because you know she was talking about cooking and and um, whereas that was seen as something kind of that feminists didn't want to be a part of anymore because it was you know anti-traditional family. But uh, what it did was, and I thought this was interesting, is, is you see, Julia Child was the first woman, like celebrity woman cook. Uh-huh. You see? So she was actually part of that whole, 
process. I mean, she's she's a woman on television cooking, and that's what makes her a celebrity. So right. it's you know once once again it's it's uh, it's a uh, it is feminism in a way. It's it's a uh, it's feminism through uh, through televised culture, and so uh, it's also interesting to know. And I'm gonna I'm gonna make this notation later as well, but. Just, just so everybody knows, like, like we said, Julie Child is linked up with intelligence agencies. It's well documented that Betty Friedan and Gloria Steinem have links to intelligence agencies, intelligence agencies as well. The mm-hmm. curious thing is, all three of those women graduated from the same college, Smith College. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Yes, all three of them. Their alma mater is Smith College. I think it's in Ohio. Um, but yeah, Julie Child, Gloria Steinem, and Betty Friedan all went to the same college, all graduated from the same college. And um, it's, I would guess that Smith College is some sort of recruiting ground of some sort, because that's where Julie, Ch- I, I, I don't know about Betty Friedan, but I know that Gloria Steinem and Julia Child were both recruited uh, for the CIA and OSS right out of Smith College, so. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it's, 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 that's a very curious thing there. Um, let's see, how much time do we have here? About 15? Well, why don't we, uh, get into, um, some of these folks. Well, let's just start off with Julie Child. Let's just start talking about her. And see what, uh, she's actually, see what she's actually all about since we've been uh, referring to her so much. Um, oh, real yeah, quick, so I just... Oh, real quick, ahead. I just wanted to inject this here. Uh, you know, you bring up... I, I just put in Smith College Socialism into Google and then you get their curricula. And, yeah, of course, it's all uh, courses of study of women, study of women and gender, uh, feminist public culture, feminist public cultures, uh, sexual harassment, and social change, feminism and the fate of the planet, debates in feminist theory, the subject, uh, reproductive justice, feminist theories of cross-border organizing and sex trade and trafficking and on and on. That's a curric- yeah. curricula at Smith College. Course catalog. Yeah, you got. What I'm reading off you of. gotta. You gotta think too. I, I mean, I guess we could we could fill up 15 more minutes with, uh, with some more talk about this, and then um, get into the actual people behind uh, the celebrity chefs uh, a little later. You gotta think too how externalizing power that you know, um, you know, uh, factoring externalization of power into the fact that you are watching someone cook food on television. Mm-hmm. And and like I said, I, I don't see anything generally wrong with getting some idea. You know, I mean, it's just an... Ex- you, could, you could say that the cooking show is just an extension of passing along a recipe to your friend, right? I could see right. that. Uh-huh. But with the, with the amount of cooking shows that are on television today... The amount of celebrity. I mean, why do we need a celebrity chef? Do you, do you um, Chris, are you aware that in Britain, that the tabloids in Britain are full of articles about 
uh, celebrity chefs like Jamie Oliver and Gordon Ramsay. They're all over the tabloids like a movie star. And I'm, I'm thinking to myself, whereas in, in Western culture, you know, we kind of look to the movie star as, you know, being some, oh, I want to read, you know, I want to see who's, you know, who this person's dating. I want to know how many children they have and all that type of stuff. So that's already attached to the, the movie star, the TV star, the sports star, whatever. Why would you even be interested in the celebrity chef? <laughs> well, I think that's important to establish it. Uh, it. It didn't bring this up in this article, but I thought uh, I think of maybe a, a point that was missed is is taking something like cooking, and then you you build associations with it as to uh, you, you you put it you're putting it into the realm of expertise. And then, you know, how we're always trained to defer to experts for everything. And, you know, once you establish that, it's kind of like, well, you know, that's not my job. That's something that's better left up to the uh, experts at uh, Olive Garden or whatever. Let's go there and eat because I don't want to <laughs> – I don't want to attempt that. That's, that's for no, – that, that is yeah. true. I, I, I will concur with that because I think that's what most people do. Most people say – We'll say, oh, my hamburger is not as good as you know the Bob's Big Boy down the street. So let's go eat a Bob's Big Boy instead of making it myself because they make it better than I do. Yeah, and that reinforces that where you have celebrity chefs, and you know, celebrity is synonymous with, uh, or at least on one level, synonymous with uh, expertise. Or um, yeah, because oh, he wouldn't be on TV unless he, unless he really knew what he was doing and was really good at it. And yeah, that looks good, but I never, I can't match that. So I'm sure too they come out with their own restaurants and their own, or at least in in the chain restaurants they have the uh, what's the guy's name em, Emerald. They'll have the oh here here's as seen on TV. You know this dish. You know it's, it's em, Emerald approved something or something or another. I don't know. Yeah, well, yeah, Emerald's an interesting guy uh, as well because I would say that he was probably the first celebrity chef of the modern era to really like you know get people hooked on the idea of watching cooking shows. Um, Uh huh. You know, like just being a—I mean, Martha Stewart was around before him, but he, uh, Martha Stewart, is kind of all over the place. She's not just a chef or a cook. But um, as far as just a chef being on TV, I think everybody, you know, uh, who who grew up in the ninety, you know, grew up in the nineties and two thousands would know who Emerald was, and he was promoted big time. And we'll talk a little bit about him. He doesn't really have too much of a nefarious background, but um, but yeah, it's it's the it's, it's just like you said, it's the promotion. Also, these people. What happens in the process of becoming these celebrity chefs is they become products themselves. So they actually cease to be people. <laughs> yeah, they become like a be, brand. Yeah, they become a brand. And and so that's another interesting thing is, is the branding process of food, it's like you brought up with, you know, the military uh, promoting the idea of, of the processed foods and, bring, you know, really bringing that idea about. And then you think, because we don't, um, 
we don't uh, really think too deeply about this here because uh, everything in American culture is branded. But just think about how unnatural it is to brand food. Yeah. It's like, how do you do that? You know? Yeah, like brand and market food. I mean, I could understand, like, let's say you go to the grocer down the street and you say, they say, wow, you know, Chris's, Chris's apple cart has the best apples, right? (laughs) But Chris didn't make the apple. Right. <laughs> you know, so it, it's it, it's an interesting thing of, of, of uh, branding food and uh, just putting that all into a, a systemized context of, of some, you know, something like that. You, you understand what I'm saying? No, it, it is about um, the... Uh perceptions that are generated and created in people's minds and I think that's important to stand that like it, you know it doesn't you know there, there may be something about Chris's apples here that uh, he, he knows something about um, cultivating an apple tree to get the you know to get the apple tree to get the best results you know maybe possible within those boundaries of how good an apple can be you know what i mean so you know it doesn't mean nobody else has that knowledge probably a lot of people would have the same exact knowledge but um you know i i could take that and and put some kind of um yeah brand on it or and then you know so that I'll create the misperception that oh, this is something special and unique that's differentiated from everything else, but it's really not based on anything other than you know um, me putting the 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 effort into building those associations between this brand I create and then this this thing that already exists that I really don't have that much to do with other than you know um, it, it, just taking just taking advantage of it. Yeah, that's that's what it is, and it's um, yeah, it creates a mythos around. I mean, brand. I mean, we live in an age now where where the word branding is used like flagrantly. Um, people are branding everything under the sun: their names, their you know, faces, um, all sorts of crazy stuff. Well, you know, we brought that up with the Jose Barrera, the Starbucks coffee brand. It's like okay. Like most most people don't grind their own beans and go through the kind of trouble and effort to get a good cup of coffee. Um, so when they like have star so called Starbucks coffee, where okay they're grinding the beans, they're mm-hmm. kind of paying it, they're paying particular attention to the the, the, the process that makes a makes a decent cup of coffee. And then they're like, wow, that's great, you know. Where, where did this come from? Oh, it's Starbucks. It's like, well, not really. It's, that's been around. I, I remember this buddy of mine, like, he would, he was, like, into coffee, and he would grind his own beans, and he got me started doing it, and it was like, wow, this is, like, fucking great coffee, man. It's like, how did you do this? He's like, oh, yeah, I grind my own beans. I do the blah, 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 and this and that, and never heard it, never knew, never ran across that before in my life. But, you know, yeah. you know, Bud could have been Starbucks, you know, if he would have... Well, not, I mean, you know, you know what I mean, though. Like he could have. Well, you know, what's funny is, is brand. I mean, brand comes from branding cattle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. That's what. That, 
that's what you're doing when you're branding something. You're putting your brand on it, like you brand your cattle to make sure he doesn't wander over into the next ranch and get mixed up with the other guy's cattle. So, uh, yeah, that's what a brand is. And and it's funny too. It's it's just a it's like you said. It's just a perception of something. It's like well, Chris's apples taste good because Chris, you know, you know, throws his. Uh, Chris throws, you know, the, the remains of the, the wood in, in the fireplace on his soil, so, uh, you know, he knows some little trick there. And if you if you go up to him at the farmer's market and you say, hey, you know, what makes your apple taste so good? Uh, you say, well, I, I just, you know, dump my wood ash in the, in the, in the soil, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. And and so that's it. And, and but, but then you get into this whole this whole concept too where like which is which is another myth that's been created through uh, food and marketing is the idea of the secret sauce or the the, the you know coke's got the secret recipe in the, in the vaults and you know uh, and, and it's all marketing that's all that it is it's not anything special it's not you know and it's it, like I said, it's not that one person doesn't have a greener thumb than the other person. Of course they do. And should they be able to say, hey, everybody loves my apple, so I'm going to raise the price a little bit. Yeah, that, that's a whole different conversation in it all of itself. It's just saying, I'm just saying that in the modern sense, branding food, branding food is a ridiculous concept. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, I know what you mean. It... it, it um... Yeah, it, it yeah it has no bearing on, on actual reality. It's all just perceptions that are created in people's minds, and uh, yeah, yeah, uh, and, and right. I'd say I'd say advertising, which is you know along with the arts and music and everything else, is uh, intertwined with intelligence agencies as well. Um. You know, advertising and especially once again. Uh, to correlate with with what you were talking about of the rise of the processed food industry, the rise of feminism, all coming to a head because you know you're not gonna with feminism you're not gonna have women in the kitchen anymore preparing food. Um, at the same time, you also have the rise of what, what they call the golden age of advertising, right there in the '60s, kicking off and. Uh, yeah, that, that's what they call the, the early to mid 1960s. Was referred to as the golden age of advertising. Yeah, that Vance Packard book is a good good book that goes into a lot of that, how psychology is used in marketing, and and that that yeah that started. I think that started being uh, developed, you know, in the 50s, and then came. Yeah, came to the golden age, which developed into the golden age of marketing right in the 60s. And then, yeah, um, what's the name of that book? Uh, the Hidden Persuaders. Hidden Persuaders, right. Uh, yeah, um, I got a clip. You want to hear it? Absolutely. This is from a movie that... Um, it's what's the guy's name? Leonard Leonard DiCaprio, and uh-huh. Body of Lies. You ever seen that? 
Yes, but I don't remember it. It was a long time ago. Yeah, I haven't seen it in a long time. I know that there's a scene in it where they stage like a uh, a, a bombing on a military base, and they they they, they like put put dead bodies in, in a building, and they set off an explosion, and then it gets reported on the news and everything like uh, the terrorists got got us on this base and. Um, and there's this many dead and all this, that, and the other thing. That, that was an interesting thing, this movie. But there's this one scene um, that's pertinent what we're talking about where, um, okay, so if I remember correctly, uh, the guy, the main character is uh, Leonard there, and he's dating this um, local in, uh, I think they're in Iraq, or is where this takes place. And so... He goes to her house for dinner, and uh, her sister is cooking up some grub for everybody. And um, so he, so he, you know, introduces himself, and then he, you know, excuses himself to go off into the living room to, um, you know, wait for dinner to get done. And so there's uh, two boys, two children in there, and he has this dialogue with them. So listen to this. Smells good in there, huh? It's not good. It's not good. You don't like your mother's cooking? What kind of food do you like? Hamburgers. You? Spaghetti. Me too. Yeah, he's a CIA agent, by the way. Right. In the movie. Yeah, that's that's real interesting, huh? Yeah, I thought you know, so. You know, after, yeah. Yeah, that's that's real interesting. Uh, just just on that note, I was thinking about something earlier, and I wanted to bring it up. It's interesting how the iconic American food, the hamburger, the French fries, and the Coca Cola. Uh huh. Are, none of them are, Ameri- are English words or American. You have the hamburger, which is German. You have the French fries, and you have the Coca-Cola. <laughs> uh-huh, yeah. It, it's, all, uh, it's all from some other language. So it's, well, that's like yeah. just, just about everything in uh, so-called American culture is some amalgamation of uh, something else that was brought in from another culture, you know, and then uh, uh, transmorgified into something that called American culture, which there really isn't any such thing in reality. That is true. That is true. Um, well, uh in the next hour, we will get into the names of, and, uh, of these uh, celebrity chefs and some of their interesting backgrounds that these people have. Because uh, I'm telling you right now, um, I was not expecting to actually find uh, interesting backgrounds in some of these celebrity chefs, uh, but I did. And it was because I uh, found out about Julia Child that I even looked into it at all, and and it was it was pretty it, it's pretty funny uh, when we get into it. So uh, yeah, in the next hour we'll uh, get into that.
And we're back. It turns out that the Department of Defense has funded television shows on the Food Network, such as Cupcake Wars and Master Chef. I'm not making this up. It was uh, recently just released in what was the largest uh, FOIA request release, which was done by... Uh, Tom Secker over at uh, CIA in Hollywood, uh, his uh, his buddies with Pierce Redman, and um, yeah, people can uh, go check that out over at uh, Tom Secker's website. I think it's uh, spyculture.com. I don't endorse everything uh, Tom Secker talks about, but this is uh, definitely very interesting. And uh, it's it's also interesting that uh, the Department of Defense is funding shows like Master Chef and Cupcake Wars. But um, just more mindless, uh, brainless entertainment uh, being funded by the powers that be. Why don't we get into some of the backgrounds of, of some of these chefs? I think that would be uh, interesting. Um, yeah. Well... Yeah, we could start um, from the least offensive and move our way up to Julia Child. Okay. So, so um, the first one, and Chris, I would uh, ask if, if you could do me a favor and look up the movie Three Days of the Condor on Wikipedia. Okay. Okay. And I'm going to start out with Giada De Laurentiis. Now, everybody who's into uh, watching cooking shows should know who Giada De Laurentiis is. Um, Giada De Laurentiis is, I believe, the granddaughter of the uh, very famous film producer, Dino De Laurentiis, who also produced a lot of TV shows, probably produced some of the worst movies ever made. Uh, but um, aside from Giada being uh, part of the Hollywood royalty the only other thing I could really find in her background that looked a little strange was that she has a degree from UCLA in social anthropology and I thought that was very strange but then I actually looked into social anthropology and it turns out that there's a lot of people in entertainment who have degrees in social anthropology, a lot of actors and actresses, and you could just go look that up yourself, and we don't have time to totally get into that. But, um, yeah, her husband, or I'm sorry, her uh, grandfather, Dino De Laurentiis, um, produced a lot of films, a lot of television shows. I think he even produced Airwolf, which is definitely, you know, some form of propaganda go back and watch Airwolf. And, uh, Chris, what is it? I know he produced uh, Three Days of the Condor. So, Chris, what does the movie Three Days of the Condor have to do with it? 
Uh, it's a 1975 American political thriller film directed by Sandy Pollock and starring Robert Redford, Faye Dunaway, Cliff Robertson, and Max von Sydow. Uh, screenplay by Lorenzo Semple Jr. and David Rayfield. Was it adapted from a 1974 novel, Six Days of Condor, by James Grady, set mainly in New York City and Washington, D.C.? The film was about a bookish CIA researcher who comes back from lunch, discovers all his co-workers are shot dead, and tries to outwit those responsible until he figures out whom he can really trust. The film was nominated for a Academy Award for the Best Film Editing Semple and Rayfield received an Edgar Award for the from the Mystery Writers of America for the Best Motion Picture Screenplay. Now, notice they had they mentioned that he comes back from lunch, huh? Right? Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm I'm, I'm, totally, I'm totally kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, ter- but seriously, yeah, this is a this is some sort of CIA movie there and um, and yeah so I'm just showing that Giada De Laurentiis is from Hollywood and Hollywood is no stranger to collaborating with intelligence agencies and uh, and like I said we're going from the least nefarious the least offensive up to Julia Child so the next one in line is Sandra Lee okay Mm -hmm. now if anybody knows about Sandra Lee, she's probably not really well liked uh, in the serious chef community, considering she uses pre-prepped food and a microwave. But um, Sandra Lee has an interesting uh, connection through her husband, her former husband, and her current boyfriend. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, her current boyfriend is Andrew Cuomo, the mayor of New York. Oh, really? Okay. Or I'm, so, I'm sorry, the governor of New York. He's the governor of New York. It was actually, but he comes from a uh, he comes from an American uh, royalty family of the Cuomos. You know, Mario Cuomo ran for president. He was he was the mayor of New York at one time, and. Uh, so uh, yeah, that's uh, that's interesting. But her her uh, ex husband, she was uh, married to a guy by the name of Bruce Karatz. Okay, mm. and Bruce Karatz is an American businessman and philanthropist. Is noted for his role as the chair, uh, chairman and CEO of KB Home, and for his philanthropic efforts to rebuild Los Angeles after the L.A. riots. Also, rebuilding Hurricane, uh, New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. Okay. And uh, this, this guy's like a total, this guy's like a billionaire. And so, uh, she went from uh, being married to a billionaire philanthropist to now being with the governor. Okay. And like I said, uh, some of their stuff might not seem so uh, interesting, except for there is somebody else who is connected to uh, big figures within New York. 
Okay. Mm. And, and that would be a lady. Let me find it here. John has a filing cabinet in the back seat of his car, so I do. It'd be a little bit do, tricky done. going down the road. Is I have to go. I've got the. Uh, I've got to weed through all my paperwork, like like the Warren Commission findings, <laughs> uh, the uh, the Ultra documents, and then um, the Majestic Twelve stuff. Oh, wait, here it is. Oh, I found it. It's the file on Martha Stewart. Okay. <laughs> um, the, the lady I was looking for is, her name is Donna Halston, okay? And Donna Halston, uh, in 1993 was one of the people who uh, started the Food Network. Okay? She okay. was one of the people who, who was there in the beginning of the Food Network. And, or I'm sorry, her name is Donna Hanover, not Donna Halton. I apologize. Donna Hanover. Okay? Okay. And so Donna Hanover was there in the beginning of the Food Network. And she was, she's an American journalist, radio and television personality, producer and actress who appeared on WR Radio in New York City and then on the Food Network, okay? Um, as Donna Hanover began to work in television series, uh, goes on through her stuff here, let's get to where she talk, she goes to the Food Network. Um, let's see. She continued to work at the Food Network, co-anchoring in its Food Today program. Now, here's the weird. Here's the weird thing about uh, Donna Halston, or I'm sorry, Donna Hanover. I keep saying Halston. I don't know why. Do you know who she was married to, Chris? Uh, let me guess. Um. I have no idea. She was married to Rudy Giuliani. Rudy Giuliani, okay. All right, so Sandra Lee's pretty much, for the most part, married to Andrew Cuomo, and the lady who helped start the Food Network was married to Rudy Giuliani. Okay. Okay. So she was the first lady of New York at the same time she worked at the Food Network, and... It's kind of interesting because Donna Hanover is no slouch when it comes to knowledge because she actually graduated from Stanford University with a degree in political science. Okay. <laughs> okay. So uh, she also attended Columbia University. So kind of an interesting thing that this lady who goes to Stanford and gets a degree in political science starts working at the Food Network. 
Let's move on to Mr. Mario Batali. Now, Mario, Mario Batali, if anybody not familiar with him, I'm sure they are, he's on a television show now called The Chew on regular television. I have never seen this uh, show, so I, I'm not familiar with it. But the first time I ever saw Mario Batali was back when he used to be on PBS uh, with his trip, trips around Spain. And... Um, it says he's an American chef, writer, restaurateur, and media personality. In addition to his classical culinary training, he is an expert on the history and culture of Italian cuisine, including local and regional variations. And this guy is basically a media empire unto himself. He's, you know, got dozens of restaurants everywhere. He's, you know, on TV shows. He writes books. He's got everything going on. Uh, Mario was raised in Seattle, Washington, by Marilyn Batali and Armando Batali, who worked for Boeing most of Mario's childhood. He spent his high school years studying in Madrid, Spain, before attending Rutgers University for business management and theater. Now, uh, currently, Mario lives in Greenwich Village with his wife. Okay. So, um, yeah, his, his dad worked for Boeing, and it says that they were able to move around in his position for Boeing, um, moving from country to country like Spain, and then they lived in England afterwards. And I got a quote here from Armando, but they thought, uh, it's a very interesting quote, and it's funny, too, because I've read different articles, and you can't exactly seem to pin down what um, Armando Vitali did for Bowie. In, in some articles, it says he was a quality control expert. In other articles, it says he was an engineer. Um, and then some articles, like on Wikipedia, it doesn't even mention what he did. It just said he worked for Bowie. But here's a quote from an article... Uh, by Armando Vitali. It says, When I was working for Boeing, we moved to Spain in 1977 and got to experience a different kind of lifestyle. We got there two days after Franco died, and we saw the whole transition to democracy over there. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of a strange time to move your family into a country that's going through a revolutionary time period. And uh, I don't know what to make of that, but I'll just leave it at that. Uh, on, on that note, as far as his dad working for Boeing, being able to live in Spain and England, because my grandpa worked for uh, the aerospace industry, and he didn't uh, live all over the world. So, and he was an engineer. So I, he must have been in a higher position to be able to uh, do something like that. And um, Mario Batali is also a member of something called the David Lynch Foundation for Transcendental Meditation. Oh. Okay? Okay. And if you want a good little summary of of the David Lynch Foundation for Transcendental Meditation, 
you could uh, go over to uh, Aaron Franz's Transistor Radio, and he has a podcast on there where he talks about uh, David Lynch and uh, his Transcendental Meditation Foundation. And uh, how, and basically what it says is that he that they're, they're trying to get it into schools and prisons, get Transcendental Meditation put into schools and prisons, and there's a lot of actors and entertainers involved with involved with uh, that particular foundation. So it's kind of strange. Martha Stewart is a big fish. Well, science is um, All right. Stewart, she was born in New Jersey. And she's the second of six children. Uh, she was born to a middle-class family of, uh, with the last name Koistra, or Kostyra, I think that's how it's called. Um, when she was 10 years old, she was the occasional babysitter for Mickey Mantle, Yogi Berra, Gil McDonald, and other players of the New York Yankees. That's what her first job was. Uh, when she was at 15, she was featured in a television commercial for Unilever, and she began a modeling career in the 1960s. I have to say that if you go and look at those old pictures of Martha Stewart, she's not she's pretty good looking. She's probably about six feet tall. And, um, yeah, she used to be a model back in the swing of the 60s. And at some, yeah, and at some point she's uh, she says her mother taught her how to cook. So later she learned the process of canning and preserving. Uh, when she visited her grandparents' home, uh, she graduated from Bentley High School and then attended Barnard College, where she uh, had a major in chemistry and a minor in European history, which later switched to a double major in history and architectural history. Now, uh, let's see. In 1976, Stewart started a catering business. Now, before she started her catering business, she married a man by the name of Andrew Stewart, and Andrew Stewart uh, was a lawyer. Uh, he was... Uh, at the time he met Martha, uh, he was uh, gra just graduating from Yale Law School. Uh, but he became a... Uh, uh, but since here, the, the Martha Stewart started a catering business in her basement with her friend. And, um, Stewart was also hired as the manager of a gourmet food store, the Market Basket. Uh, then it says... Uh, her husband, Andrew, had become the president of prominent New York publishing house, Harry Abrams Incorporated. In 1977, he was responsible for releasing English-language edition of the Secret Book of Gnome series. Uh, through this nepotistic, uh, you know, uh, connection, Martha was able to release a, a cookbook, and that's how she kind of rose to fame. And just to give a brief synopsis here, she basically started catering to a lot of the elite 
of New York and the surrounding areas. And that's how she gained pop, gained popularity. And just to give a personal account, um, I was watching Martha Stewart show one day with my wife many years ago. Uh, I don't even know if that's on TV anymore, but, um, but I was watching the program and, um, as the credits were getting near to roll, she had a woman on, I don't remember who it was, but she turned to her and she said, well, have, she said, do you know David Rockefeller? And the woman says, no, no, I don't. She says, oh, I must introduce you to him. He's just a lovely old man. He's a philanthropist. Yes, I definitely, you definitely should meet him. And I'm sitting there going, what? I'm <laughs> all, <laughs> um, well, Martha Stewart knows David Rockefeller. Oh, huh, very interesting. And so then, uh, when, when I was, you know, looking into this stuff again, I noticed that, uh, I typed, uh, Martha Stewart, David Rockefeller into a search engine and it came back with the results of Martha Stewart's blog from 2013, where there's about 48 pictures of her on a horse and carriage ride with David Rockefeller. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it turns out they are actually neighbors in Maine. You know, I'm sure they, uh, I know Martha Stewart has multiple houses. We all know David Rockefeller has multiple houses. Um, but yeah, at their main residence, the state, the state of Maine, uh, they are next door neighbors to each other. And I was recently reading that, uh, on David Rockefeller's 100th birthday, he actually gave that residence back to the state of Maine as a gift from him for his 100th birthday. And guess who was in attendance at the party? Uh, Martha Stewart. That is correct. So she is, uh, yeah, she is buddies with uh, with uh, David Rockefeller. They take horse and buggy rides together. Yeah, when you bring and, up how she's like a supermodel-looking dame tall and then you know is a is a like a super housekeeper and uh cook and everything say the thing about stepford wives this thing comes to mind (laughs) sure (laughs) yeah i mean that's the thing i mean once again once again it's not that a lot of these people aren't good at what they do but that would be even more reason and chris and i've talked about this uh privately that that would be even more reason for them to be employed by the elite for their lavish parties and whatnot. Of course, of course, you would want Martha Stewart to cater your Rockefeller party, right? Mm-hmm. She's the best, right? Yeah. So, um, so yeah, that makes total sense. That I'm sure that there's a lot of these uh, celebrity chefs who get gigs at. at super ritzy high-end uh, elite parties to cater or you know maybe maybe uh, Martha Stewart goes over and you know cooks David Rockefeller a steak every morning who knows but um, but uh, but yeah that, that's another thing and we had, we had also speculated that you know that would be another great thing to be to be you know undercover would be to be a chef that would, you know, travel around cooking 
food and you know what 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 another great way to you know bring people together or to get into you know um someone's good graces right mhm right so um but one of the things that that Martha Stewart's Rock, Rockefeller connection wasn't able to allegedly help her out with was the I am clone stock trading case. Okay. That was of that was that took place on my birthday, December twenty seventh, two thousand one. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because December twenty seventh is actually a Masonic holiday. So oh. I just want to bring that in in into play here because I'm of the I'm of the uh school of thought that Martha Stewart probably didn't really suffer any consequences for this alleged scandal and that it was probably some sort of public hazing, uh, maybe even a Freemasonic hazing of some sort now I can't prove that but that's just what I think you know something akin to Nixon's public hazing or Bill Clinton or even Bill Cosby Obviously, nothing ever seems to come of these things. No one ever gets in trouble. It's just a public hazing, and it could be part of a Freemasonic ritual, considering the only person that I don't have proof of being a Freemason that, uh, that I just talked about there was is Martha Stewart. But I wouldn't doubt that she's involved with something at some level. Yeah, like in that uh, book about Freemasonry, that uh, Peter Lavenda book, um the uh, Ritual America, you go into it, and, it, and a lot of it is... Uh, oh, you, you, mean, oh, you mean the, uh, you mean the uh, Adam Parfrey book? Yeah, what did I say? Did I say... You uh, said Peter, Leve- Peter Lavenda. Oh, uh, yeah, Adam Parfrey, yeah, sorry. Um, the... the a, lot of th- a lot of things stand out uh, based on what you were talking about. Like, it... it uh, the rituals, like a lot of times, there's this element of humiliation with right. the uh, yeah. uh, the uh, uh, it, it, within the ritual with the um, uh, whoever they're doing the ritual on. I can't think of the name of what that you know. But you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, mocking the victim. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah, that's what I, that's what I think. A lot of these things, because like I said, nothing ever comes of them. A lot of times, they turn out to be like Bill Clinton scandal, totally fake. And um, if you watch Wag the Dog, obviously, there's no way a movie could come out before a scandal and be exactly to the T the same thing. So obviously, it's staged. Right. And um, so. Uh, Martha Stewart has partnered with big people all over the place. Uh, she, uh, in, in September, uh, on September 14th of 2007, uh, it, it's, it's funny too because after her scandal, she only got bigger. She only got more popular after she came out of prison. And, um, she only served about like five months or something. But she had a partnership with, uh, Ernest and Julio Gallo Winery. Uh, to produce a wine brand with the Martha Stewart label on it. We know uh, all about uh, how corrupt those guys are. Mm-hmm. And um, 
they're basically Rothschild. They're a Rothschild front, and uh, Rothschild, we know, um, is involved in the wine business. And um, it's interesting because there's a book written on the whole I Am Clone. Once again, you have Freemasonry right in the name of I Am Clone. Um, but this whole this whole uh, insider trading scandal that came out of the I Am Clone scan, um, thing that Martha Stewart was allegedly involved with, um, it's also interesting that Martha Stewart was trading in a company that had to do with like cloning genetic genetic cloning research. Um, oh, really? Which goes which goes hand in glove with you know being an elitist. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, that's what this company was that you know went belly up or whatever. That it was a genetic cloning research facility. So I'm clone or I am clone, whatever it was. Uh, there's a book written about this. It's called The Cell Game. It came out in 2004, and it was written by a journalist, and his name is Alex Prudhomme. Okay. Uh huh. And Alex Prudhomme shares the last name of a very famous chef named Paul Prudhomme. And although I've never been able to make any definite connection to Paul Prudhomme, to Alex Prudhomme, it's just kind of funny that they shared the same last name. But let me just read this about Alex Prudhomme. It says, uh, Prudhomme is a 1984 graduate of Middlebury College, attended the Bread Loaf Writers Conference, Prudhomme's journalism has appeared in many publications, including the New York Times, the New Yorker, Vanity Fair, Time, and People. Prudhomme uh, authored uh, with co-author Michael Cherkasky, forewarned in 2003 about terrorism, the cell game about the I'm Clone scandal, the ripple effect, the fate of freshwater in the 21st century in 2011. And here's the interesting thing. So you've got the guy, he wrote the book on the, on the I'm Clone scandal, which has nothing to do with Martha Stewart, just Martha Stewart's connected to it, right? He's just writing it on, you know, a general book, right? Uh-huh. On the, enti- on the entire scandal. But here's the interesting thing. Alex Prudhomme collaborated with his great aunt on the book My Life in France her memoir of discovering food and life in post-war Paris and Marseille in 2006, none other than Julia Child. <laughs> uh-huh. The guy who wrote the go-to book for the information about the I'm Clone scandal, which involved Martha Stewart, is the grand-nephew of Julia Child. And he's yeah. on... He's on her husband's side of the family, which her husband is, was involved in intelligence as well as his brother was. So it's quite possible we have a family here of intelligence operatives of some sort. Okay? Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, real interesting. Another honorable bunch, and I should have mentioned him earlier because he's quite harmless, I'm sure, but uh, Jose Andreas, who is based in Washington, D.C., and he has a, uh, he has a uh, restaurant there in Washington that's frequented by all of the uh, 
by all of the elites there. Uh, it says uh, Andreas's restaurant El, El Bulli is what it's called. Um, Andreas taught a culinary course at Harvard University. He was named Dean of Spanish Studies at the International Culinary Center, where he developed a curricular in traditional modern Spanish cuisine. He announced he was heading back to the classroom in 2013 and would teach his first course on how food shapes civilization at George Washington University. And um, we've talked about that before, you know, uh, food shaping civilization, and that's a very uh, interesting thing. Um, the next person on the list here, we're going to go across the pond, okay? All right. We're going to head over across the pond to England. And in England over there, I mentioned before that a lot of the celebrity chefs end up in the, um, well, they end up in the uh, tabloids, right? Like Gordon Ramsay and Jamie Oliver. And another one who, ends up, who ended up in the tabloids, and, and she's really the only one I could find, is a lady by the name of Nigella Lawson. Okay? Uh-huh. And Nigella Lawson is an English journalist, broadcaster, television personality, gourmet, and food writer. She is the daughter of Nigel Lawson, the former Chancellor of the Exchequer, and Vanessa Salmon Lawson, whose family owns the J. Lion or the J. Lions and Company food catering business. After graduating from Lady Margaret Hall at Oxford University, Lawson started working as a book reviewer and restaurant critic and later became the deputy literary editor of the Sunday Times in 1986. She then embarked upon a career as a freelance journalist writing for a number of newspapers and magazines. In 1998, she brought out her first cookbook called How to Eat. Talk about expert advice. Hmm. Um <clears throat> Lawson was born in Wandsworth, London, one of the daughters of Nigel Lawson, Baron Lawson of Gladdy, a former conservative MP and former chancellor of the Exchequer in Margaret Thatcher's government, and his first wife, Vanessa, a socialite, celebrated beauty and heiress to the J. Lyons and Company fortune. Her parents both came from Jewish families. Her given name was originally suggested by her grandmother. Uh, Nigel and Vanessa Lawson divorced in 1980. Um, blah, 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 blah. Let's see. Uh, taking part in the third series of BBC Family History documentary series, What Do You Think, or Who Do You Think You Are? Lawson sought to uncover some of her family's ancestry. She traced her ancestors to Ashkenazi Jews who originated from Eastern Europe and Germany, leaving Lawson surprised to not have been an Iberian Sephardi. Um, she, I... I Obviously, I don't think that plays into anything except maybe the financial aspect of it. Um, this is interesting about her education. She spent, um, she was educated at several independent schools, um, and she graduated in Oxford with a degree in medieval and modern languages and lived in Florence, Italy for a period of time. These are highly educated people for being celebrity chefs. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Here, do you, now, do you know who she was married to? 
Um, no. Okay, she was married to a guy by the name of Charles Satchi. Have you ever heard of Charles Satchi? Charles Satchi, no. Yes, Charles Satchi is a British businessman and the co-founder with his brother, Maurice, of the advertising agency Satchi & Satchi. The brothers led the business world's largest advertising agency in the 1980s until they were forced out in 95. In the same year, the brothers formed a new agency called M&C Satchi. Charles is now known for his vast art collection and for owning Satchi Gallery and his particular for his sponsorship of the young British artists, including Damien Hurst and Tracy Emin. Okay, those are those, like, you know, uh, nihilist artists. Uh-huh. Like the demonic-type weird stuff with the blood and the... Uh, Damien Hurst is all about the... He's the one who does the body works type stuff. You know what I'm talking about? With the cadavers. Oh, that guy. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, yeah so he's in the he's in the funding all of this nihilistic, weird, bizarre art. Um, okay. And that's what he's known for. He's like one of the top art collectors of the world. He was instrumental in '92 in launching the career of Damien Hirst and bringing Mark Quinn to the forefront of the art world. His he is renowned as a patron. His renown as a patron peaked in '97 when part of his collection was shown at the Royal Academy as the exhibition Sensation, which traveled to Berlin and New York, causing headlines and some offense, for example, to the families and children of murder. To, for example, to the families of children murdered by Myra Hindle, Hindley, who was portrayed in one of the works and consolidating the position of the young British artists, otherwise known as the YBAs. And uh, they've been in, him and uh, Nigella have been in the tabloids quite frequently because apparently uh, she was beat by him many times and is now divorced from him. He's apparently a very violent man who even has ties to underworld crime. Okay. Okay. Now, before we get to Julia Child, I'm going to bring somebody up. Now, Chris, would you say that this would be an accurate description of the life of, just a brief summary of the life of Julia Child, just what I've told you about her and just what you've read about her? Would you say this is about right? Um... A woman works for the government. She meets her husband, who also works for the government. They get married. Um, they continue working for the government, and then they move to France. And then at some point, they move back, and she becomes a celebrity chef. Would you say that's a pretty accurate description of the life of Julie Child, just in a nutshell? Mm, yeah. Okay. I'm going to... Um, read something here and if anybody uh, speaking of Martha Stewart one of Martha Stewart's good friends is a lady by the name of Ina Garten okay and Ina Garten is known as the barefoot contessa okay now Ina was born Ina Rosenberg and she was born in Brooklyn New York and raised in Stanford Connecticut Garten was one of two children born to Charles Rosenberg a, a surgeon specializing in uh, never mind I'll skip down. 
Okay. Now, at 15, she met her future husband, Jeffrey Darden, on a trip to visit her brother at Dartmouth College. After school, she attended Syracuse, Syracuse University, but postponed her education pursuits to marry. On December 22nd, Rosenberg and Darden were married in Stanford and soon relocated to Fort Bragg. She began to dabble in cooking and entertaining in an effort to occupy her time while her husband served his four-year military tour during the Vietnam War. She also acquired her pilot's license. After her husband had completed his military service, the couple journeyed to France for a four-month camping vacation that Garden had described as the birth of her love of French cuisine. During this trip, she experienced open-air markets, blah, 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 blah. On returning to the U.S., she began to cultivate her culinary abilities by studying the volumes of Julia Child's seminal cookbook, Mastering the Art of French Cooking. Her weekly dinner party tradition began taking shape during this time, and she refined her home entertaining skills when she and her husband moved to Washington, D.C. in 1972. In Washington, Garden worked in the White House and took business courses at George Washington University. I'll say again, that's where Jose Andreas teaches the food civilization course. Eventually earning an MBA while her husband worked in the State Department and completed his graduate studies. Originally employed as a low-level government aide, she climbed the political ladder to the Office of Management and Budget and was assigned to the position of budget analyst, which entailed writing the nuclear energy budget and policy papers on nuclear centrifuge plants for Presidents Gerald Ford and Jimmy Carter. Strained by the pressures of her work and serious high-power setting of Washington, Garden once again turned to cooking and entertaining in her free time, constantly arranging dinner parties and soirees at her home on the weekends. Meanwhile, she was buying and refurbishing and reselling homes for, prof for profit in the DuPont Circle neighborhood. The profit from these sales gave Garden the means to make her next purchase, the Barefoot, the Barefoot Contessa Specialty Food Store, uh, which was in West Hampton Beach, New York. Okay? Mm hmm Okay, and so she's out in the Hamptons. Uh, she's getting popular because of the store, and uh, eventually she starts going on, uh, you know, she starts going on the uh, Martha Stewart show and stuff like that. Now... Let's read about her husband. He's a very interesting character who also appears on the show from time to time. His name is Jeffrey Garden. He is the one trip professor in the practice of international trade, finance, and business at the Yale School of Management and the chairman of the Garten Rothkopf, a global consulting firm. He also serves on several corporate and philanthropic boards. From 1996 to 2005, he was the dean of the school, and before that, the undersecretary of commerce for international trade in the Clinton administration from 1993 to 95. Previously, he worked on Wall Street as a managing director at the Blackstone and Lehman Brothers Group. Okay. 
He is the author of four books on the global political, economic, and numerous articles, or the global political and economic structure, and numerous and writes numerous articles, including works, uh, including works that appeared in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, Newsweek, Foreign Affairs, Harvard Business Review, and from 1997 to 2005, he wrote a monthly comment. Uh, column in business week okay 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 not only that he worked in the nixon ford and carter administrations in a variety of foreign policy and economic positions he went to work on wall street becoming the managing director of lehman brothers and at the blackstone group at lehman he specialized in sovereign debt restructuring in latin america yeah that's intelligence agency right there mm -hmm. uh he also lived in Tokyo and directed and expanded the Asian investment banking business for that firm, including overseeing some of the largest international corporate restructuring of the era. At Blackstone, he worked in the financial advisory and mergers and acquisitions arena. He then became the Undersecretary of Commerce for International Trade in the Clinton administration, where he focused his efforts on trade and investment deals in big emerging markets such as China, India, Indonesia, Brazil, Mexico, and Turkey. This guy is a big dog. Uh-huh. Okay. Okay. Here's the funny thing. In 2006, Garden and a colleague, David Rothkopf, set up Garden Rothkopf in Washington to provide strategic advice for global companies, international organizations, and governments. Garden sits on the board of directors for several organizations, including the Aetna Corporation, CarMax Incorporated, Credit Suisse at Asset Management. He's also on the advisory board of Miller Buckfire Financial Restructuring Firm, and he's a trustee of the International Rescue Committee. Previously, he was a director of Standard and Poor's, the board of managers. Okay. Hmm. Garden is married to Ina Garden, who hosts the Food Network's Barefoot Contessa. <laughs> huh. Okay. He has been teaching a number of courses at Yale School of Management. He teaches the course The Future of Global Financing, Managing Global Catastrophes, Wall Street and Washington Markets, Policies and Politics, Understanding Global Finance Centers, and Leading a Global Economy. Okay. Now, let's look at David J. Rothkoff, his partner. David J. Rothkoff is the CEO and editor of the FP Group. The FP Group publishes Foreign Policy Magazine. Rothkoff was first announced as CEO and editor at large in 2012 when Foreign Policy was owned by the Washington Post Company. He's been a regular contributor to the magazine. He's also president and CEO of Garten Rothkoff International. He is also the author of numerous internationally acclaimed books, and this is how I know David Rothkopf, because he wrote a book in 2008 called Superclass, The Global Power Elite and the World They Are Making. He also wrote a book in 2006 called Running the World, The Inside Story of the National Security Council and the Architects of American Power. He is a visiting scholar at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, and uh, where's the other one here? Rothkopf was managing director of Kissinger and Associates, the international advisory firm founded and chaired by U.S. Secretary of State Henry A. Kissinger. 
All right, so how is that for a Whopper? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Let's move on to the big dog in in the house here, Julia Child. Julia Carolyn McWilliams was born in Pasadena, California, the daughter of John McWilliams, a Princeton University graduate and prominent land manager, and his wife, the former Julia Carolyn. A paper company heiress whose father, Byron Curtis Weston, served as lieutenant governor of, the, of Massachusetts. Child attended West... Julia Child, the, the daughter, attended Westridge School, Polytechnic uh, School for, from 4th grade to ninth grade. Uh, at 6 feet 2 inches tall, Child played tennis, golf, and basketball. Um, she also played sports while attending Smith College, which we talked about previously, uh, from which she graduated in 1934 with a major in English. A press release issued by Smith in 2004 states that her ma major was history, though. Okay. Child joined the Office of Strategic Services after finding that she was too tall to enlist in the Women's Army Corps or in the U.S. Navy. She began her OSS career as a typist at its headquarters in Washington, but because of her education and experience, she was given a more responsible position as the top secret research researcher working directly for the head of OSS, General William J. Donovan. Mm -hmm. As a research assistant in the secret intelligence division, she typed 10,000 names on white note cards to keep track of officers. For a year, she worked at the OSS Emergency Research Equipment Section in Washington, D.C. as a file clerk and then as the assistant to developers of a shark repellent needed to ensure that sharks would not explode ordnance target, targeting U-boats uh, from Germany. In 1944, she was posted to Candy Salon, now Sri Lanka, where her responsibilities included registering cataloging and channeling a great volume of highly classified communications for the OSS's clandestine stations in Asia. She was later posted to China, where she received the emblem of Meritus Civilian Service as head of the registry of the OSS Secretariat. For her service, Child received an award that cited her many virtues, including her drive and inherent cheerfulness. As with other OSS records, her file was declassified in 2008, and unlike other files, her complete file is available online. While in Ceylon, she met Paul Cushing Child, also an OSS employee, and the two were married in September 1946. Here's what um, here's what uh, Paul Child did. He he was uh, the head of the OSS Visual Presentation Group. He created a secret war room and created secret maps of places like Burma, like the Burma Road for General Mountbatten. And a quote from Julia Child about what really goes on in the OSS about, you know, um, these aren't fedora-wearing, uh, trench coat-wearing uh, spies lurking around, you know, with uh, secret gadgetry or anything like that. This is what she says the OSS is. Our colleagues were a fascinating bunch of anthropologists, geographers, missionaries, psychiatrists, ornithologists, cartographers, which are map drawers, bankers, and lawyers. Mm -hmm. Okay? So these are people who are interested in the culture of particular countries, and she was 
speaking from uh, her post in Ceylon at the time, which was Sri Lanka. After the OSS, Paul worked for the United States Information Service, which was run by the State Department, in an artistic, visual, cultural propaganda job. This I'm quoting from her book, My Life in France. At the U.S. Embassy in France, uh, he also worked at the U.S. Embassy in France, Germany, Norway, and eventually Washington, D.C. Okay, and Paul Child actually ran the cultural visual department of the USIS in Washington, D.C. at one time. Okay, so he was, he was a big, he was a big deal. Okay. And that's basically it, except for one little thing I wanted to know, that in 2007 there was a book that came, or there was a movie that came out, and it was based off of the, the book My Life in France by Julia Child, but it was mixed with another story of a lady named Julie Powell. And the movie was called Julie and Julia. And... Um, And uh, the blog was called My Year of Cooking Dangerously, and this lady, Julie Powell, went about um, cooking every recipe that Julia Child ever came up with. Here's an interesting thing about Julie Powell, though, and it was interesting that the movie always, you know, we talked about this before, about how, about how this movie, along with every other movie, just has to have some sort of connection to something. It says... While working for the Lower Manhattan Development Corporation in August 2002, Powell began the Julie Julia Project, a blog chronicling her attempt to cook all the recipes in Julia Child's Mastering the Art of French Cooking. Mm -hmm. And so I thought this was interesting just because um, Julia Child allegedly was supposed to be on one of the planes that flew in, you know, uh, flew into the towers, allegedly. Remember right. that? Uh-huh. And so you've you got this, this two-pronged 9-11 connection here, um, where obviously those stories about the 350 celebrities, uh, which Tim actually had posted up a couple, uh, like a week ago on Fakeologist, and you and Marcus had talked about this like last year sometime. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so there's, you know, allegedly there's 350 celebrities that were all supposed to fly on 9-11 at some point, but uh, shucks, I mean, they just missed their flight or they overslept or they decided not to fly that day, which is absolutely, which you guys, you know, went over and said that's absolutely, completely, totally ludicrous. Um, Oh, of course. Yeah, just the sheer number of people, 350 people of, you know, Notoriety uh, were all going to fly on that same day yeah, um, and change their plans at the last minute or overslept yeah, or something like that. Yeah, that's literally like all like a lot of the uh, excuses for it. It's, it's hilarious. But yeah, Julia Child was one of those things. And to come full circle back around, that is what originally kicked me off on this uh, looking into the backgrounds of these chefs. Hey, cut out there, John. Being her for an obvious fraud. I'm yeah, sure you cut, out, uh, she had, you, you, you cut out there, John. You had to. Oh, I said, I said, um, I said, uh, 
that's initially what got me kicked off on this, you know, looking into chef's backgrounds was was seeing that list of uh, celebrities and seeing Julie Child's name on it when this, you know, when this was obviously made up stuff. And so I, I thought to myself, well, Julia Child used to be an intelligence and probably always was an intelligence. And uh, she had no problem contributing her name to, you know, an obvious psyop of some sort. And um, and so, yeah, that's what initially kicked me off on finding out about these folks. So um, as we wrap it up here, is there anything that you have to say about uh, all of this? Well, uh, just to kind of maybe speculate on what's going what's going on with all this. I mean, I know there's in uh, you know in elite circles, of course, you're going to have your private chefs that are going to cook food because you know at a, at a certain uh, level in the uh, hierarchy, there people don't cook for themselves. Obviously, uh, at least a lot of them don't. And so there's this, you know, whole separate culture that exists uh, at those levels. And uh, to have a, a really kind of inroad into the, uh, the network of these sort of celebrity chefs that are kind of sought after and they, uh, and they have, um, you know, they could they could go to work for somebody and you know they go and cook for their family like every night and so that that is like a real intimate sort of connection with a certain household you know and um i, I mean what better way to kind of have a network that kind of keeps tabs on the elite you know i mean just yeah that, that's right too i mean it, it's it's also interesting too that in you know like old old line families the butlers are like revered. Have you ever heard of that? Yeah. How, how, how the well, butlers like... are really well well trusted, and so yeah, I, uh-huh. I could see cooks being the same way too. I mean, they always make a big deal about the, whoever the cook is at the White House, you know. Um. And uh, I can't remember. There's like some Filipino lady uh, who's a cook at the White House right now, and they made a big deal over her because she's the you know first uh, woman uh, I guess, you know, non-white cook or something, I don't know but yeah, the, you, you're absolutely right um, and this even goes back into ancient, you know, ancient times because, you know, they were always scared that someone was going to poison their food or whatever you know, so kings and queens had their personal chefs, personal uh uh, personal tasters and uh, and yeah, like you said, it's a, it's an intimate setting too to uh, have a personal chef because uh, that's where uh, you know food is an intimate thing. There, there's there's some there's something um, about food that uh, you know makes people happy and uh, it uh, you know even people become emotionally uh, dependent on food. Um, it cures it cures their happiness sometimes. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and there's sort of this relationship that's established, you know, there with somebody that's in your home cooking for you, and they're making all this like really good food, 
And uh, so, yeah, it, you have to kind of, you well, obviously you have to have some trust and faith in that person, right? Yeah, and it's interesting you you just said that, and you could have been talking about like you're talking talking about you're talking about a chef in an elite household, but what you actually just described was the chef you see on television. <laughs> yeah, how a lot of stuff gets. Um, it, it is just kind of a. Uh, it, 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 a mimicking of the elite. Yeah, everybody wants to be one of the, uh, you know, the chosen ones, the celebrity worship, and then uh, people pattern themselves after what they see in the uh, uh, wealthy individuals, the kind of behavior and the kind of stuff they do. And yeah, so that makes sense on on one level as far as uh, kind of giving the average working schlub a kind of a, a, a insight into that or at least um you know vicariously through television and, yeah that, that's uh, what i was saying is every every evening every evening you can sit down and watch cooks make the most fabulous food um while you enjoy your gmo filled tv dinner yeah that'll have like the chef's name on it, you know, and everything. Oh, this is Chef uh, <laughs> Julia Child's pot roast. I get out of the microwave. I'm sitting eat it while I watch cooking shows. <laughs> Unfortunately, I mean that that's what it is, and you know that's not to say that you can't glean something from uh, you know those shows. I, I've got my wife's got Julia Child's cookbook uh, sitting on. Um, on the kitchen shelf there, uh, right next to one of Ina Garden's cookbooks. They they have a lot of good ideas, and I've enjoyed uh, some of the recipes myself, personally. But, um, but yeah, I mean, we get, once again, this is uh, some interesting stuff, these interesting connections that just come back to it. And like we said at the beginning, uh, food would definitely be something that would aid in cultural manipulation and cultural control. And I think this may possibly be a window into that. Oh, yeah, no doubt. I mean, there's too many of these obvious connections there. And it is uh, definitely, I think, you know, you talk about culture creation. uh, Food is the big, I I think, uh, maybe oftentimes kind of overlooked thing. A lot lot of people focus in on, you know, Hollywood entertainment and stuff like that. But... uh, uh, food would be a more kind of closer to the center of cultural life, you know. Yeah, and 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 it also may be something completely totally overlooked um, in just basic research in general. I mean, um, I think that at, up up to this point, there's been enough things written about the Council on Foreign Relations that you probably never have to write a paper on the Council on Foreign Relations again. Um, mm-hmm. I think somebody needs to start uh, digging into the Food Network and uh, the Culinary Institute of the Arts and Le Cordon Bleu School of Culinary Arts. <laughs> see <laughs> see what kind see what kind of a uh, elitist and uh, and uh, 
spooks you can find uh, who run these places. Another thing I forgot to mention, this is real interesting, uh, just real quick before I uh, have to go here. That was the, um, that there was a famous chef. Uh, his name was James Beard. Right? Um, mm-hmm. Anybody who knows anything about uh, cocaine will probably have heard of James Beard. And there was a foundation set up called the, you know, called the James Beard Foundation. And um, it said in, um, it says here that uh, the James Beard Foundation was involved with some uh, scamming, which I thought was pretty interesting. It said uh, the former president of the, of the James Beard Foundation, Leonard F. Pickle, resigned in August 2004, shortly before the result of a three-month audit were to be announced. He was convicted of fraud in late September, having misused hundreds of thousands of dollars for unnecessary and undocumented expenses. As the result of the scandal and his indictment by the Attorney General's office, the members of the board of James Beard Foundation were asked to resign in January 2005. So, um, you've got some... uh, You've got some uh, financial scandal there mixed in with all the rest of this interesting stuff. And um, on that note, uh, I want to thank uh, Chris for letting me uh, do this and uh, check out uh, our other stuff at hoaxbusterscall.com, and you can look for uh, Chris's uh, solo broadcast, and you can look for the regular weekly afternoon commute that we do together. And... uh, Find all that at hoaxbusterscall.com, and there will be more hoaxbusterscall.com special reports in the future. Chris, uh, thanks, and uh, I'll talk to you later. Cool, man. Real good. Thanks a lot, dude. Talk to you later. All right. Okay. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye.